This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. There are so many bad drivers on the road, so many numbskulls that I'm calling on the provincial government to do something about it. In order to obtain a driver's license in this province, as we know, we need a, uh, a written test. We have to pass that. We also have to pass a driving test. And I'm fine with that. I think that part of the system works. But fast forward a few years after you get your license, things kind of fall by the wayside. Your hands are no longer at 10 and 2. You might not check your blind spot as often. Maybe you don't feel like signaling your lane change. Uh, we speed, we tailgate. Uh, there's some distracted drivers out there. Unfortunately, all of that is just a fact of life. The overwhelming majority of crashes are caused by driver error. So what are we doing about it? Nothing, except that we pay more for auto insurance because every day on our roads, it's a case of smash up derby. But what if the province mandated driver's license retesting every 10 years? So you get your license at 16 or 17 or 18, whatever the case is. But then you have to get retested at age 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and so on. And maybe we pay $50 to do that. Maybe it's more. I think it'll make for better drivers, safer roads, less accidents, thus lower insurance premiums, less strain on the healthcare system, and we add to the provincial coffers. And in turn, the province, as long as they don't bungle around and fumble our money, uh, can use that revenue to improve roads, bridges, and other infrastructure. Well, quite the statement, I know. Hopefully some of you have not driven off the road uh, listening to me talk about that. Dr. Louisa Gambora is an independent clinical psychologist specializing in rehab, also appeared as a judge on Canada's Worst Driver Season 4, 5, and 6, and joins us in studio. Dr. Gambora, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So am I a crazy man? Um, I think you have some interesting ideas and opinions. <laughs> I unfortunately disagree with you. Okay, so what, what do you think of the idea of retesting drivers? I'm just putting it out there. Every 10 years. Um, I think if your goal is to decrease bad driving, uh, if we actually did it and then researched it, mm-hmm. we'd find that it was a complete waste of money. Okay, so why do you say that? I say that because... Um, The errors that people make while driving um, are caused by a number of things, and lack of information, lack of education, lack of skills is Mm -hmm. only one small factor. Mm -hmm. We have the rest of what affects the brain. So knowledge and learning is one small piece, you know, maybe 5, 10, 20%, whatever number you want to give it. And that comes from the written test and the driver test. That's right, and your years of experience on the road as well. But the larger part comes from what's going on with my brain, which controls the whole body. So no brain, you know, that's it. I'm Mm -hmm. gone. Yeah. Right. Um, So my history, my medical condition, how much sleep have I had? Have I eaten properly? Mm. Uh, Did I have a fight with a boss, a friend, a partner? Am I in a rush because I'm late for the studio to do this interview with you? Yes, I'm not going to comment on that. (laughs) And so, you know, my anxiety level may be going up. My arousal level might be going up. And if you think about arousal at the low end, when I'm kind of groggy just waiting up, I'm not so sharp, I'm not performing very well, even if it's a task as simple as tying my shoelace. As I wake up, there's a range in that arousal level of my brain where I'm probably functioning at my best. And then as stress increases, fatigue increases, all kinds of other things add to the burden that my brain's trying to manage, my performance is going to decrease. And so that's a major factor. So is that why we... um 
I don't know, slough off or slack off in terms of signaling our lane change and, and not doing what we're supposed to be doing? Uh, that could be one factor for sure. Okay. Um, at other times, people may actually consciously decide there's nobody behind me. Why signal? Mm-hmm. So there are so many different factors that contribute to it. But one of the things that happens when we're driving is we're planning, we're anticipating what's going to happen. We have expectations of how other drivers are going to behave. And when other drivers don't behave as expected or when the road conditions change, and again, unexpectedly, then if I have unrealistic expectations, so I'll call them crazy thinking. Okay. Great. We all, we all have it. Yep. I, I have it too, probably every day. <laughs> um, but when that, that difference between what I expect and what is out there in the reality is vastly different, m- my brain is going to react to that and that basic fight or flight Mm-hmm. Um, reaction is going to come up. So I can't flee. I can't get a helicopter and just get pulled out, you know, removed. Uh, so now how do I deal with it? How do I cope? And so, you know, maybe you can teach people a little bit of how to cope better in the car. But the problem is, if they're at already 98% full, if you think of a glass that's full of water, And you fill it right up to the top. And you're even going to see that little rounded, you know, you're going to see the water is just above the actual edge of the glass. And you're wondering, how can it have more water than the glass can hold? Then you add one more drop of water and it all spills out, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what happens. Uh, My brain can only take on so much. The expectations are different than, than what the reality is. And I may be out of my depth and I can shut down. Uh, I mean, I can freeze. I can literally just stop moving in the car or I can go to the other extreme and be quite angry, quite aggressive. That's the fight, the fight side. Can you give us that um, uh, that gap scenario or that fight uh, or flight scenario, uh, perhaps on a highway? I mean, we have thousands of people who travel from Hamilton to Toronto and vice versa every day. Is there a scenario that you, you've seen, you've envisioned, you've maybe personally experienced? I think everyone has experienced being cut off uh, suddenly and unexpectedly. Uh, somebody just pulls in right in front of you. You know, your heart skips a beat. Ooh, mm-hmm. oh, you didn't hit anything. That's good. Um, and then perhaps the person acts erratically um, or just that. And perhaps you're late and now they're blocking you to get off and everything starts to go downhill. Right. Perhaps the person moves out again. Now they're beside you. Maybe someone is behind you honking at you to move out of the way because they want to go by. We've all experienced um, that sort of frustration. Maybe we're the one that's sitting behind someone and they seem to have fallen asleep and they're not paying attention. It's a light. The light is turned green. The person isn't moving. I'm late for my appointment. I honk person isn't moving. I honk louder. Now my blood is starting to boil. (laughs) And if I don't catch myself and say, wait a minute, I don't know what's going on in the car. Patience. What can I do? If I get out of my car, suddenly the person moves and I'm the idiot, right? And the people behind me are laughing at me. Mm -hmm. So we've experienced these things all the time. Um, Does it basically come down to, you mentioned patience, that was really a trigger word for me, but does it come down to more of... Um, 
instead of the physical kind of training that we've done, uh, is it more of the mental patience that we need? I think to if, be better drivers. I think if you included in the driver training for anyone who's getting their license, if you included some training on how to think and solve problems, what are the common problems that you might come across? You know, what's the problem when you're passing construction zones? Mm. Do you really think about the people working there and how close they are to the traffic? How about the guys that are towing, um, you know, cars off the road, the tow truck drivers that put their lives at risk? And, and, and I've treated some of those individuals after they've been injured. Um, and how fast, you know, we zip by. There's a law now that says move over, but that doesn't always happen. People ignore that. Yeah. And if you could think, that's my son, that's my brother, uh, that's my sister working there, would you slow down? So problem solving, what can I do? How do I handle the situation? Mm -hmm. But what none of us can change is what I wake up with that morning. Did I have a good night's sleep? Right. Am I in the middle of a divorce? Have I just been uh, let go from my job and now the anxiety around, you know, how am I going to survive, make money, pay the bills? Those factors none of us can anticipate. And if we have trouble coping with that and then we're in the car, which really can be a weapon, mm -hmm. uh, you know, worse than a gun, um, it, it's hard to predict unless you yourself have thought about what are the scenarios? What can I do differently? Right. Makes sense. We're with uh, Dr. Louisa Gimbora, independent uh, clinical psychologist specializing in rehab. She also appeared as a judge on Canada's Worst Driver, Season 456. I'm making the call for the provincial governments to uh, begin retesting drivers every 10 years to make it safer on the roads. Dr. Gimbora saying, no, 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 we have to make uh, people think about uh, scenarios uh, before they get uh, behind the wheel. Do you have a, a checklist or maybe some tips for drivers before they, you know, turn the ignition or press the button now in some vehicles uh, to think about before they start moving? Well, I'd like them to think about the fact that really I'm sitting in a tin can. I have absolutely no protection. Here I am in this wonderful car, my computer, all the luxuries that I would want. This is basically my living room, my family room, you know, perhaps my TV screen, so to speak, mm -hmm. with the GPS and all the other information Could be your at hand. Too. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know what? I really have no protection. So I am trusting other people and they are trusting me to look after each other, to share the road, to uh, give. You know, I can make a mistake. Somebody kind of is the defensive driver for right. one of my mistakes or careless behaviors. And at other times, I'm the defensive driver that covers for your mistake. Mm. And so it's, it's a question of, you know, give and take and respecting that other people may also do things that are unexpected. So, you know, violating social norms. So if I'm expecting everybody to signal and move in, and then you suddenly, you know, just literally rip in front of my car, scare me, and uh, maybe even stick your hand out the window and give me the gesture. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, 
I'm feeling like you've just violated right. my, my... Your mindset's changed dramatically. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's like now we're into territory. So now we're we're at a more primitive level right. of human functioning. And, and the first uh, you know thing out of that, that person's mouth would be, how dare you? I mean, you just came into my lane. I was here. Why did you do that? Yeah, right? yeah. And so, you know, um, maybe instead of testing, maybe we need to put great big rubber tires all around everybody's car. <laughs> There's an idea. Now, you know what? As silly as that sounds, but that's why I say we are driving in a tin can. And at such high speeds, these are not the race cars that you see on television. Those are roll cages with all kinds of other protective Mm -hmm. systems in place. Uh, People there are wearing fire suits. They're wearing helmets. I wish I could wear my helmet every day when I'm driving. (laughs) Are you not allowed? It would make me feel, I don't know if there's a rule against it, but, you know, I'm I'm a girl. Right, right. And, you know, my hair, and I want to look nice. I think it would be badass. But essentially, we that automobile doesn't protect us, and we have this false sense of safety, right. and we have this sense of territory. So just like you and I have a personal space, mm-hmm. and if you come, if you step a little too close, I'll probably step back right. half a step again, and we might do this dance across mm-hmm. the room. It's almost a like school of fish scenario. You're never going to touch, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, how We only got a couple of minutes here. How will the autonomous vehicle change the scenario, or will it? Um, that will be very interesting. Yeah. I suspect that it actually may decrease uh, collisions because it's that emotion, that unexpected, you know, what I want versus the reality. Right. Uh, you should behave the way that I expect you to behave. So I think it may decrease it. But of course, the key will be in the programming. Mm-hmm. And mechanical failures are always possible. But I suspect it will actually decrease Interesting. You also made a comment before uh, the show just on the cost of my scenario. Yeah, and that I, you know, (laughs) other than saying, will it be worth uh, the end result? And if your end result is to see fewer accidents, um, I'm skeptical, Mm. but then, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So we would have to try that. And see what happens. On a trial basis. Yeah. Dr. Gambor, thanks for coming in studio today uh, to answer uh, the questions and shed some light on uh, the mental aspect of the driver. I think it's very fascinating because there's a lot of gray area in there. That's what uh, I like about it. Uh, but uh, continued success and enjoy the rest of the day. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A Hamilton pediatrician who is going to be using social media to raise awareness about the dangers of leaving children in hot cars. His name is Dr. Anthony Krakow. He's going to be live streaming at 1.30 this afternoon when he challenges himself to sit in a hot car to demonstrate the dangerous effects. The event will be streamed on the Hamilton Health Sciences Facebook page, so check it out this afternoon at 1.30. And Dr. Krakow, uh, an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at McMaster University, joins us now. Dr. Krakow, good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad yourself. I'm very good, thank you. So where did this idea come from, and and why do you feel that this is important to do? So uh, this idea just stemmed from uh, previous history with kids coming into the emergency department who have been either left in a hot car or hot home uh, and uh, coming in with either heat exhaustion or heat stroke. And really the goal of this is to raise awareness in the community uh, about these risks and really that the amount of time that these kids need to be exposed to a hot car is very, very short before things start to go off the rails. 
So take us through what's going to happen today. How are you going to complete this task? So we have uh, our partners from EMS who are going to be joining us um, and monitoring me uh, live and monitoring uh, my vital signs um, and on standby. And I'm going to be put into a car and the windows will be rolled up, um, just as, as we sometimes see happens to kids. And we're going to just monitor my symptoms and monitor my vital signs. Uh, and as things sort of progress, um, sort of discuss what some of those risks are for kids. Of course, I'm not going to let myself get into any danger. So uh, if my parents are listening or watching, I I don't want them to be worried. (laughs) Uh, Today's weather forecast calls for a high of 30. It's going to feel like 37 with the humidity. How long do you think it's going to take for you to begin to feel the effects of that heat? Well, it's interesting. I was in my car yesterday uh, and I just sort of stopped in a parking lot. And within about two or three minutes, I started to feel uncomfortable. So I'm not actually sure how long I'm going to last. My guess is not very long if it's going to be that hot today. Um, And that will help illustrate the point, really, that even leaving your kids in the car for a short period of time while you run in to get the phone or, um, you know, go go do an errand, that short period of time can actually be quite dangerous because the kids don't have the option of getting out of the car or cooling themselves off. We've all been in the scenario of, uh, you know, leaving work or, or uh, you know, after uh, an event, jumping into your car. Uh, you know, it has been hot outside for, for most of the day. You, you hop into the car and you instantly feel that, uh, wow, this is uh, really, uh, you know, like an oven in here. You crank the air conditioner, things cool off rather quickly. Uh, you know, leaving a child in a hot car or you yourself this afternoon in a hot car, apart from that excessive sweating, which you're going to notice first and foremost, how is your body going to respond? What does your body do to combat this excessive heat, at least initially? So you're right that sweating is actually the very first response. And one of the things that we do to offload heat when we start to get too hot is to sweat. Uh, And that evaporative loss of heat is a huge way of getting rid of that heat and normalizing our temperature. Um, What happens after that is as we sweat and sweat is we lose water and we become dehydrated and then our body can no longer sweat anymore. And that's when things really start getting quite dangerous. Uh, And that's when we see people coming in and their skin is really red and dry, uh, but they're not sweating anymore. So actually going from sweating to not sweating is actually a very, very dangerous sign. Sorry, I was just going to say, as, as adults, one of the first things you do, and you mentioned it, is we change our behavior. And so you might roll down the windows, you might turn up the AC, you might get out of the car, you might drink some water. Um, but little kids who are strapped into a car seat have no options to do these things. And so they're really sort of stuck, and the only thing that they can do is sweat. And once that starts, it's a very quick process from them to go from sweating to not being able to sweat uh, and then really overheating to a dangerous point. And really, these kids can seize and die from this. So it's, it is something that's quite serious. Are, are you able to notice once you stop sweating? I mean, is there is there something that you realize that, hey, I'm not sweating anymore? Is that a, a conscious effort? Or are you kind of past the point mentally of realizing what's going on? And so that's one of the risks, too, is that as we start to get uh, more you know, heat exhaustion and into heat stroke, our level of consciousness actually changes. And so some of that decision-making that's really important early on uh, can actually be compromised. And so I'm, today I'm not going to let myself get into that sort of danger zone um, just because it's, it's not, uh, you know, that's not, not good for me either.
Our guest this morning is Dr. Anthony Krakow, Associate Professor in the Department of Pediatrics at McMaster University. He's going to be raising awareness about the dangers of leaving children in hot cars with a, a live stream on the Hamilton Health Sciences Facebook page. It begins at 1.30 this afternoon as he challenges himself to sit in a hot car to demonstrate those dangerous effects. So how have you prepared for this? Not necessarily physically, because I'm not sure what you can do physically, but mentally, how are you prepared? Uh, it's a good question. So, you know, I've been sort of thinking about this, and yesterday just sat in the car for a few minutes just to kind of experience what that's going to be like. And most of us, as you said earlier, most of us have had that experience of going into a car where the windows have been rolled up and we've been shopping, and it's quite hot, and we sort of, you know, change that environment to, to make it more comfortable. Um, and then also just planning, okay, what at what point am I going to pull the trigger and say, okay, I've got to get out of this car. Uh, and my plan is not to wait until the point where uh, I'm starting to feel... Uh, lethargic or tunded or my skin you know no longer sweating like at that point things have really moved uh, quickly and progressed too far so uh, I'm planning to pull the trigger um, before anything gets into the danger zone and really just sort of thinking through that from a physical standpoint I'm planning to drink a little bit of water before I go in the car just so that I know that I, my tank is full from a, a hydration standpoint you mentioned uh, pulling the trigger or opening the door, you know, getting out of that hot car. Are, are we talking under 10 minutes? Do you feel that that might be the estimated time? Yeah, you know, if I can make it, I, I'm thinking probably I'll make it to 10 minutes, but I, I'm not sure how long that's going to be. I've never actually done this before. So, you know, and, uh, you know, sort of having read about this uh, online, I know that some people have tried to make it to 10 minutes, and 10 minutes is actually very, very challenging in a hot car. Um, and so we'll see how, how far things go. You mentioned paramedics are going to be on scene as well, just looking after your uh, health, obviously, but they're also going to be able to compile, uh, I guess, some readouts or statistics on how you're doing? Yeah, so I'm going to be hooked up to a monitor, um, and they're going to be monitoring my heart rate, my blood pressure, my respiratory rate, uh, just to sort of track that along. And again, just to have another set of eyes um, and their expertise Uh, keeping track to make sure that I'm not making any decisions that are putting me at any long-term risk. And because your body mass is obviously different than that of a child and certainly of an infant, uh, can we compare that data to what they would undergo? So we by and large uh, feel that kids and the elderly are actually higher risk than otherwise healthy adults. And so um, even though the time frame for me may be around 10 minutes, it may be actually much shorter for children uh, just because of their body mass and composition. And, and again, because they can't make some of those decisions about you know, how they reposition themselves or what they're wearing in terms of offloading clothing or rolling down windows, um, the combination of the, the way that their body mass is set up and the, their ability to, to not make those decisions and get them out of the car seat puts them at particularly high risk. And that high risk also applies to um, the elderly. And, and I would also extend that to pets who when they're in your car, can't make a decision to roll down the window and turn up the AC or, or get out of the car. And so these are, at, uh, we consider, at-risk populations that are even more at-risk than I am. Uh, so children, obviously, with the, uh, the lower body mass, uh, obviously they're much uh, you know, smaller, that, uh, that sweating switch-off would happen a lot quicker, correct? Yeah, so it could happen very, very quickly. And, and we don't have a clear sense of the time frame for that because obviously we can't uh, reproduce the same experience with children. It just wouldn't be ethical. Um, but we feel that it's, it's quite short and likely in the, in the order of a few minutes as opposed to 10, 20, 30 minutes. And so even just that short time frame where you, where you run from the car to your house because you forgot something and then you see something else, that two or three minutes may be enough 
that your, your child's now already starting to experience heat exhaustion. This might be a weird question and really doesn't follow along the lines of, you know, we, we, we don't want people to be you know staying in their cars, but someone who is a larger individual, I'm, I'm picturing a football player, a basketball player, because their body is much larger than the quote-unquote normal individual, would they conceivably be able to last longer? Uh, it's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, some of my colleagues from the football community uh, want to, to chime in on that. That might be an interesting uh, discussion. Um, but, you know, it's, it, a lot of it boils down to uh, behavior. Like, we change our behavior early on, and that actually makes the biggest difference. Um, and then in terms of sweating, uh, they're larger, you know, they're larger size individuals, but they also have more water. So it's, it may be relatively proportional uh, as an adult. Um, but certainly as a child, uh, the, the fluid dynamics can be such that they can get dehydrated very, very quickly. Dr. Anthony Krakow, an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at McMaster University, is our guest here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill this week. Dr. Krakow is going to be live streaming starting at 1.30 this afternoon when he challenges himself to sit in a hot car. And again, right now it's 26 degrees. The high is 30. So come 1.30 this afternoon with that Humanex factored in, it is going to be a hot day. Uh, this is going to be live streamed on the Hamilton Health Sciences Facebook page and all in an effort to raise awareness about the dangers of leaving children in hot cars. So when this is over, you've live streamed, you've now exited the vehicle, uh, you're going to be doing interviews with the media. How long do you think it's going to take for you to recover from that hot car and, and, and quote-unquote compose yourself? Yeah, so it, it, I'll be interested to see how long that takes because I actually don't know the answer to that question. So uh, I'll be able to answer that better this afternoon. My guess is it probably takes a half an hour to an hour before I'm actually starting to feel better. Um, uh, you know, we're going to have EMS on scene, and I'll be drinking fluid as soon as I get out of the car to make sure that I'm rehydrated. Uh, but it may actually take a little while for my body to get rehydrated and for the temperature to, to effectively become normal again. Um, so, And if I'm still sweating, uh, you know, it may not be even that my temperature has started to rise that much, but my heart rate is likely to go up, and, and I want to make sure before uh, I get back on the road and drive home uh, that all my vital signs have normalized. So we're, we've got EMS on site um, to make sure that everything is safe for me. And I certainly recommend that people do not do this at home. Uh, we're doing this under a very controlled situation with uh, monitors and, and pre-hospital care uh, on standby. And so uh, I'd not recommend that people take this on as a challenge. This is going to sound like a morbid question, but what happens to the body when they get to that stage where it just shuts down? What's, what's the first thing to go and, and what ultimately happens? Well, the, the body tightly regulates its temperature, and, and our body can go all the way up to sort of 41, and we see this when people have a fever, and fever is just how your body responds to infection. It's actually good for your body when you develop a fever. It gets, helps to get rid of the infection. But above that temperature, that normal fever temperature, we enter into something called hyperthermia. Now, as long as I'm able to control my temperature with sweating and changing my behavior, we never actually get our temperature up that high. Um, but as soon as you're in an environment that's too hot, and you're dehydrated and you're not able to sweat, your body now no longer has a way to cool itself down. And so as the temperature goes up uh, in the body, the heart rate starts to go up, breathing rate will probably come up, um, start to feel uncomfortable. And then the, some of the organs that are very, very sensitive, like the brain, the kidneys, uh, can start to have problems. And so what we would expect to see is that people can become lethargic or, or less responsive. Uh, and then as things progress, start to have seizures, uh, become comatose, uh, and then die. And so, and, and, you know, we see this in North America because we do have hot, humid weather. 
Uh, and especially in Ontario, where we get high humidity, the humidity itself actually plays a huge role in our ability to cool off. And when it's very humid, it's actually hard to kind of cool down. And you'll notice it's on a, on a very humid day. You get outside, you, you're moving around, you just can't feel like you can cool yourself off. And so those sort of later stages can happen much quicker uh, in that environment. What kind of response and, uh, and I'm guessing, support have you received from coworkers and others at the hospital? Uh, I've gotten a lot of good support from my coworkers who think I'm a little crazy for doing this. But uh, <laughs> if we're doing this in the parking lot at McMaster Children's Hospital, the McMaster Children's Hospital emergency uh, uh, parking area. And so, you know, my colleagues, I'm sure, are going to be standing by uh, watching me, I hope. And um, But uh, I guess if, uh, if I need emergency, more emergency support than the paramedics, uh, I won't be able to go to the children's hospital. I'll have to find somewhere else. I was going to say, they're going to probably have to wheel you down to the general. <laughs> I'm guessing that's <laughs> true. <laughs> hey, Dr. Krakow, thanks for this. Uh, thanks for doing this uh, and raising this awareness because it's, it's a very important issue, obviously, in the summer months. Uh, and uh, we'll all check out the Facebook uh, live stream on the Hamilton Health Sciences uh, Facebook page. Good luck with it. All right. Thanks a lot, Rick. I appreciate your time. All right. Dr. Anthony Krakow, an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at McMaster University, is going to be hopping into a vehicle this afternoon starting at 1. It'll be live streamed on the Hamilton Health Sciences Facebook page. And he is challenging himself to sit in that hot car for, uh, who knows, it could be five minutes, it could be seven, it could be ten, it could be more than that, uh, to demonstrate how dangerous this is uh, to uh, obviously not leave your kids in a hot vehicle. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Vic versus Kaepernick. Uh, Michael Vick offering some advice for the former 49ers quarterback, saying that if he wants another shot in the National Football League, he should get a haircut. Kaepernick right now has a uh, just a luscious afro. It looks absolutely fantastic. I'm a big fan. As a guy who can grow an afro myself... I would love nothing more, to, nothing better to look like Colin Kaepernick. Um, managing that hairstyle is a lot of work. <laughs> so that's why I don't do it. But uh, man, oh man, it looks good. So anyway, Vic made the comments on Monday uh, saying that the former 49ers QB needs to cut his afro and go for a clean cut style in order to get a job. Uh, as you heard in the clip, Vic said, quote, the most important thing that he needs to do is just try to be presentable. Now, you'll recall, or maybe you've forgotten, that Vic was suspended for two seasons beginning in 2007 after he pleaded guilty to charges in a dogfighting investigation. And when he returned to the NFL, he got rid of his cornrows and went with a so-called clean-cut hairstyle. Now, Vic has since clarified his comments, saying that Kaepernick's hair has nothing to do with him not being on an NFL roster right now. Trust and believe what I said was not in malice, according to Michael Vick. Kaepernick parted ways with the 49ers in March, and he has not been signed by another NFL team. Many people believe his decision to kneel during the U.S. National Anthem last season to protest police shootings of black people uh, has hurt his chances of playing for another team. But I find it hilarious that Vic, the man who went to federal prison for 21 months for bankrolling and participating in that dogfighting ring, is offering advice to Colin Kaepernick. That would probably be the last person that Kaepernick should be hearing from. Although he does have some experience on rejigging or redefining his image, I'm not sure Kaepernick falls into that category. I'm not sure he has to redefine his image or who he is. I think we all know 
what he's all about. Kelly Masters is the founder of KMM Sports, is a certified NFL agent and attorney, and joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Kelly, how are you? I'm doing well today. How are you? Not too bad at all. Obviously, you're familiar with Mike Vick's comments about Colin Kaepernick's image. What do you make of those comments? Sure. You know, the, the NFL is, is a funny thing. Um, when teams are looking to build their rosters, and, and in particular at the quarterback position, which is, is so crucial, um, they look at everything. <laughs> and, and ultimately, a team wants to win. Yes, they want leadership. Uh, they want to, you know, it, you can look at teams and, and the way locker rooms are and even the way front offices operate, and, and you can kind of see who has the championship mindset. I think everybody wants, says they want to win, um, but certainly you can see the teams that are committed to the championship mindset. And in that regard, teams look at everything. You know, is he, is this, this player uh, not only uh, able um, is he skilled? Is he talented? Is he smart? Um, but also everything else. Is he a leader? And and even it sounds as silly as it sounds, looking at how a player even carries himself um, in public, uh, in the locker room, in meetings, um, in interactions with whether it be fans or teammates, um, everything is considered. And even the smallest thing is as how you present yourself reflects to a team, okay, is he, who is this person? Is he committed? Is he serious? Um, what kind of a person is he? And is he someone that, that we can count on down the stretch uh, to step up and lead this team? So, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, everything matters. And, uh, I mean, you've talked to NFL general managers and, and head coaches, and, um, I mean, we can almost guarantee that the distraction word has come about. Is Colin Kaepernick, if we bring Colin sure. Kaepernick onto our roster, is he, or what he stands for, or what he does during the anthem, going to be a distraction for our team, and, and we don't want to deal with that? Sure, and and he's already, um, you know, whether someone coached him to say this or whether he internally made the decision, he has already made every GM aware that he is not kneeling, um, you know, that his his beliefs have not changed, that he is not going to be kneeling during the national anthem. Um, interestingly, you know, teams had to make those same uh, judgment calls when looking at bringing Vic in um, when he made his comeback. You know, how much of a distraction is this and um, is it worth it? Is it worth what we're going to have to put up with in order to have this talent, this leader on the field and in our locker room? Is this more of a bigger distraction because it uh, it goes across the sports line into the political sphere, which opens it up to much more criticism and attention and headlines and, you know, talk on radio and, and TV shows? Gosh, that is it's really hard to say because if you recall, I mean, I remember very well um, when Michael Vick went to prison and and it seemed like every headline was about Michael Vick and the dog fighting and the poor dogs and Mm -hmm. everybody seemed offended and it was a a huge, um, you know, not necessarily a political debate, but it was still a a pretty significant thing to talk about. Of course, it it seems like when any issue comes up in the NFL, it's it's magnified times a thousand um, just because of the popularity of the sport and, and how polarizing these characters can be when they take certain, when they do certain things or, or take certain um, stances. So, I, you know, I, is it more political? Absolutely. Does it um, create a bigger distraction? Uh, honestly, not sure. 
And I guess the only difference now uh, compared to then would be the social media sphere and, and how people can yeah. easily get into more trouble or, or, or you know, uh, <laughs> receive more praise through what they do through social media. Oh, my goodness. Well, and, and we see it day in and day out in, in every sphere uh, now of society. And it's, you know, it's amazing. People ask how much has being an agent, from my perspective, or how much has the NFL changed since you first started in the NFL? And, and I formed KMM and started as an agent in 2005, pre-Twitter. <laughs> I mean, Facebook wasn't even really, you know, a thing um, back then. And my word, you know, the, the changes that we now see with social media and the power to do good and to do evil and to, to elevate, um, you know, a, a person's personal brand or to destroy it in 140 characters is there. And that's something that I think, you know, all of us as agents and the teams try as much as we can to convey to athletes, you know, you have, this is power and this is, social media gives you power and you can use it for good or you can use it for um, destroying yourself or destroying others. Um, it, it, I think that really does, um, you know, in essence, raise the conversation uh, to a level that just wasn't there back in the uh, the Vic controversy days. We're chatting with uh, Kelly Masters, uh, the founder of KMM Sports, and uh, is a certified NFL agent and an attorney here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill this week. The comment from Vic, just try to be presentable, uh, it's almost as if Vic was telling Kaepernick that he has to appear to be less black to get into the league. Is that a fair mm. statement? Oh, you know, it, in the same age, anyone can, can take anything offensively. And I think, I don't think he certainly, at least I don't think um, Vic intended it to be that way, but I mean, anyone could take that as, as being offensive or even being a, a racist type of statement. I, I don't think it was meant with that intent. Right. Um, that doesn't seem like something that, that Vic would say. And, and I would I would actually maybe disagree a little bit with what you said you know, prior to when I just jumped on with you, um, that, Kaepernick, that Kaepernick should not be listening to advice from Vic based on his background. And I would kind of disagree with that, only because... Um, knowing Vic and knowing the people around him, um, he's not the same person. He's, well, he's the same person, but he has, has grown and gone through making those, making some really horrible decisions and not just seeing how it impacted his, his football career, impacted his life, impacted his family and the people around him. Um, you know, going to prison is, you know, that, that affects every aspect of your life. And so, you know, certainly he can, he can sort of speak to that experience of, hey, you know, <laughs> I, um, I had to, you know, reevaluate every decision I was making and making myself look more like I'm, like I'm a bit more serious about my job. Maybe he thought that was good advice. Um, you know, in hindsight, sure, it, it could come across offensive or, um, you know, maybe that he, he wanted um, Kaepernick not to look so. Like I said, but I, I just don't see that. I don't think that was the intent. Um, and quite honestly, it's, um, I think, trying to encourage Kaepernick to look at every possible way that he can make himself look like, okay, I'm not trying to be a distraction. I'm not trying to, you know, if maybe if everyone on the sideline had frozen, it was the style, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't even be said. Um and not that he needs to try to blend in, but if, if it looks like he's trying to draw attention to himself, 
I think that's what Vic was getting at. It's a fair comment. We don't know, uh, even if Kaepernick wants to play football again, uh, he's not come out and said, you know, I, I do want to resume my career or continue my career. If you were his agent, and I guess this is this is hypothetical, theoretical, and he did want to keep playing, what advice would you give to him? You know, I would say, um, and a lot of things can obviously play out on social media or on a national stage, but when it comes down to teams making decisions, um, teams have to spend their time with a player, um, analyzing, interviewing, talking, um, you know, obviously looking even at the physical aspect, is he in the shape that he needs to be in? Is he prepared to step up and lead a team to a Super Bowl? Um, and those evaluations happen one-on-one. Um, I think conveying the right message, um, which means being very strategic, if, if anything is communicated, that it's um, strategic and effective but minimal. Um, he doesn't need to be out. He doesn't need to be putting out tweets or press releases on, uh, on yes, I'm ready to play. Um, but his actions certainly can't, um, actions and words can't work against him. I think it's always interesting through the, even the draft process. Um, one of the most important questions that every team asks a player is, do you love football? And I always think that's interesting that that's, you know, that's part of a big part of the evaluation process isn't just is he a good player? Is he a leader? Is he a good, you know, is he, is his character something that we can work with? Um, they want to know, does this player love football? Because football is hard. <laughs> it's, it's physically challenging. It's mentally and emotionally challenging. Um, and if his heart really is more in, you know, civic um, matters and um, maybe his charitable endeavors, and his heart really isn't in football, then is he going to be what he needs to be for a team? And can a team really invest in that when his heart's not in it? I would assume that most players would answer that question with, yes, I love football, but maybe it's the way they answer it that would convince GMs <laughs> and coaches on whether to draft that individual? It's amazing, isn't it, what you can, can pick up on through body language or the way someone um, responds to a question. And certainly, you know, GMs and and coaches, a lot of them have been doing this for years and years, and you can you can tell, you can see in a player um, whether his heart really is in it. And, and I think that's the thing that, that Kaepernick needs to convey mm-hmm. in his one-on-one communication with teams is, yes, I want to be here. I, I love football. I still want to win a Super Bowl. Um, I'm committed. And that's what you need to see. We're chatting with uh, Kelly Masters, the founder of KMM Sports and is also a certified NFL agent and attorney here on the Bill Kelly Show on Hamilton's News Talk Leader, AM 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill this week. How closely does the Kaepernick story uh, resemble the Ricky Williams story, who took you know some time off, mm, played in the Canadian sure. Football League, wanted to, you know, quote unquote, find himself. Uh, visited, you know, went, went around the world, uh, and then said, you know what, yeah, I still want to kind of play football. I mean, he, he didn't really have yeah. to reinvent himself, uh, but he did express a willingness to play the game again. Sure. Can, can you imagine if social media was around back then <laughs> with Ricky Williams? Um, I can only imagine. Um, you know, the funny thing with, with Ricky Williams is he was, I think it was pretty clear he he conveyed his message of here's, you know, here's what my journey looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everybody kind of knew it. He didn't he didn't change anything. He didn't hide. He didn't change himself. He didn't try to hide. 
what he was doing. He was very open with, I'm on this journey, and, you know, here's where I am right now. Um, and, and, you know, granted, I wasn't in those meetings. I, I didn't, you know, I can't say I ever sat across the table from Ricky Williams and said, you know, do you really want to play football? And, and you know, where are you on this journey that you say you're on? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, it, it would have to be up to the teams and the decision makers um, to meet with him and to make that decision. And so, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a tough comparison. It's, it's a different time and um, different issues. But, um, yeah, make no mistake, Ricky Williams was pretty clear about, you know, who he was and um, what he was dealing with. Uh, last question for you. Is the NFL with Colin Kaepernick and the stance that he has taken a better league without him or with him? Is the NFL a better league without him? Is is the NFL a better league with him or without him? Oh, <laughs> that's that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, talent wise, he can still he can still play the game, right? But I mean, with sure. his stance and everything that goes with it, uh, you know, is the league better for it having an individual who has this stance and this platform and is drawing attention to a very important issue? Uh, or would they just sure. rather say, you know what, we don't want it, we don't want this anymore? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. The NFL is such a um, it's you can look at the rules, the uniform rules, the you know touchdown celebration rules, and there's very much um, a, an effort to, um, I guess, minimize individuality. <laughs> if that makes sense, mm-hmm. and really make it a team sport. And so when someone comes along and takes a stand like Kaepernick did, um, it does seem really disruptive to the you know, to business as usual um, with the NFL. And quite honestly, I don't know if if, if people really knew what to do with it. Um, like, wow, you know, <laughs> this this individual is, is taking this really, you know, it's an important issue, but he's going about it in such a controversial, polarizing way. Um, you know, to me, looking back over all the entire thing, I saw it as not that I didn't agree with his stance on um, on wanting to see um, change when it came to the treatment uh, of minorities. I totally agree with that. But the way everything went down overall, it, it seemed to produce a, a negative outcome. And I think what I, – I, I wouldn't say that the NFL is better without him – but I do think it's an opportunity for the NFL and for players to, to look at themselves and say, okay, we have this humongous platform. We have so much influence, um, right or wrong. The NFL is so powerful. What is the most effective way to impact society and impact change and get conversations going? Um, how can we use our platform effectively? And so if anything, um, it's sort of raised awareness around the league of, well, if, if that's not acceptable, then then what is the best way we can accomplish what we want to accomplish and use our platforms to affect to good um, and to, to change things for the better? Uh, so it, it, at the very minimum, it started that conversation. And, you know, so maybe we're, we are better um, for, what he, for what we went through with him. And, you know, if he is back in the league this year and maybe finds other ways uh, which it seems, you know, quite honestly, if you followed him since the end of the season, he's doing a lot of good things. 
Um, and that's great. And if, if that is the direction we're going, then the league can be better. Should be fun to watch. Kelly, thanks for the time. Uh, a great debut here on the Bill Kelly Show. Maybe we'll touch base with you sometime down the road. Thank you. All right. Kelly Masters, founder of KMM Sports, certified NFL agent and an attorney, uh, sharing her thoughts on the Colin Kaepernick scenario in the NFL. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.